following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Well, uh, if you're watching online, you might notice it looks a little different. We don't have internet here at the building this morning, so we can't do our regular streaming procedure. So, um, but... Praise God, we still can almost do it uh, through the phone. So, um, but uh, we keep praying for those that are without power, and maybe the Lord will keep the internet out for a while longer. That might do us all some good. But, well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter seven uh, this morning. We're going to look at verse eleven through seventeen, and that's on page eight six three in the pew. Bibles, um, and I know that it's Christmas um, this week, and it, it doesn't really bother me that much. We're in Luke chapter seven instead of Luke chapter two, um, but uh, fear not. Uh, Christmas Eve service is coming. Uh, we're, we'll uh, go through the whole nativity um, story, and we're going to do uh, a service of lights with lots of candles and. Um, singing and scripture, and uh, we're looking forward to a wonderful time uh, celebrating our Savior's birth um, on Saturday um, and Sunday, too. So a lot of Christmas all at once, so that's great. So, But today we're in Luke chapter 7, and this is a pretty dramatic scene that we're going to observe here this morning in Luke's Gospel um, it takes place uh, in a little hamlet called Nain, um, a word uh, a word which means the lovely. Uh, so I'm guessing it was maybe a nice view, nice little place to live. Uh, this is a tiny little village just south of Nazareth on the northern border of Samaria uh, that you can probably see in your Bible maps if you look in the back of your Bible. Um, so just made up of, a, of just a few families. Um, one of which had just lost a son. Um, and Warren, Warren Wiersbe pointed out the dichotomy of this account, of its uh, two crowds with two different destinations and two sons and two enemies. And uh, just a wonderful outline of what's going on here. And we'll catch a glimpse of Jesus' compassion, his power, and his providence um, So let's look at that text together. Uh, You'll remember from last week, Jesus had just healed the centurion servant in Capernaum. um, And now we're 25 miles or so uh, south of Capernaum, just outside of this village called Nain. So Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. 
Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account that we've read this morning. We thank you, Lord, um, that you have uh, so much to show us and teach us here about who you are and what you're like um, and how we can relate to you. And we're grateful. So, Lord, we pray now that your spirit would speak. Not me, but you. We long to hear your voice, Lord. So we pray that you would speak to us now for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that we notice um, in this account is the two crowds heading in two different directions, right? Jesus uh, and his crowd, he's being followed by a great crowd of people uh, that included um, his disciples and then other people just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next because some pretty amazing things have hap- had happened around him. Um, and that crowd is all headed to the city, right? They're headed to Nain from Capernaum. And the second crowd was the crowd with the widow, a considerable crowd from town. And this is a funeral procession. Uh, And they're headed from the city to the cemetery. The funeral was for the only son of the widow. Um, Jesus called him a young man. So this is this is not a child, but this is a fellow who is not quite um, married age. So teenager. It doesn't take a lot of head scratching here, I don't think, to see some spiritual symbolism at work in these in these two crowds and their intended destinations. Right. One crowd, the crowd that has Jesus in it, headed for. uh, Oh, sorry. the, The one without Jesus in it is headed for the cemetery. Right. They are surrounded by the sting and stench of death. They are filled with grief, and they are literally headed to the grave. See, in in first century uh, Palestine, it was uh, when someone died, you buried them that day. It's not like we do it now. They're they're slid in a cooler, and you wait until the cemetery thaws out or whatever to go uh, to go bury them. Somebody dies, bury them that day, and there's a whole procedure there um, because it, the, the land of Israel is small. There is not a lot of room to bury people there. So they, they lay in a tomb um, for a year and decay, and then they open the tomb and go in there and gather their bones into a box and, and bury that. So they don't take up a coffin-sized uh, space, right? So not a lot of square footage, so you've got to shrink them down. Uh, and that's, that's how it worked. So this is the day that this young man died, right? So it's probably late in the afternoon, most likely, and they are headed um, to the cemetery, mourning and grieving. And that's one, so that's one crowd. The other crowd is the crowd with Jesus leading it. They're headed for the city, Right? Uh, 
a place literally called the Lovely. And that's a good name for a town, right? That, that says something. And this crowd is rejoicing at God's blessing, right? The, they, some of them had witnessed the recent healing of the centurion's servant, even from a distance. Um, and they're, they're, they're with Jesus, right? They're, they're hearing his word and, and hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles. That's a, that's a great crowd to be in. And Warren Wiersbe said, spiritually speaking, each of us is in one of these two crowds. If you've trusted Christ, you are going to the city. If you are dead in sin, you are already in the cemetery and under the condemnation of God. You need to trust Jesus Christ and be raised from the dead. Every single story that we see, every movie we watch, every show that we watch, we can look to see the gospel at work. I don't know if you believe that or not. Sometimes it's hard. It takes a lot of work. Sometimes it's really easy. One of my favorite examples we talked about in youth group 500 years ago was a movie called Superman Returns. You ever heard of Superman? The cape and the boots. And Well, there is so much um, Christology in that movie. Superman is a savior figure. Um, he, he gives his life to save other people. And at, at one point, he had like fought off the bad guy and is floating in space like this, dead, right? And then the sun shines on him and he comes back to life. And uh, You can find those figures and those pictures everywhere all the time if you look. So as you're watching your movies and TVs and whatever your media consumption is, look for that. It's not usually intended. Remember the, the guys who created Superman were, were Jewish. They weren't Christians, but Superman is such a, a powerful Christ figure. It, that's not in the notes, so this, this is, sorry, I'm a little distracted. So here we have two crowds and two destinations, one representing life and salvation uh, through faith in Jesus, and the other representing death and condemnation that result from rejecting Jesus. Um, like was read earlier this morning. And within those crowds, there are two sons, two only sons. One was dead, the only son of his mother, who was also a widow. And though, uh, though she was now surrounded by this crowd for the funeral procession, um, she was most likely on her way to a life of destitution and poverty with no family, um, to help and care for her. We'd like to think in our, uh, our romantic um, mindset about things that, oh, well, the, you know, the village would rally around her and, and support her and take care of her. Israel was not a welfare state. She was most likely would end up begging on, and die cold and hungry and alone. The other son in the other crowd is the author of life, according to Acts 3.15. Also, the only son, begotten of his father. If you've ever wondered what that term means, only begotten son, only is pretty easy. Begotten is of the father, right? But he's totally and wholly and completely unique. Um, God who put on flesh. 
that was born in the stable in Bethlehem and walked with us. God with us, Emmanuel. All right? So the first son is dead, but he was actually bound for life. And the second son, though he was alive, was bound for death. The first son was dead, was bound for life, but would eventually die again. I think that the people in, in the, the accounts of the New Testament that we should have the most compassion on are those who are raised from the dead. Because they had to go through death twice. I mean, once has got to be bad enough. Um, but they had to do it twice. He was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. Right? Lazarus was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. And he had to die again. Jesus, on the other hand, was alive, headed for death, only to be raised again, resurrected and not resuscitated, never to see or taste death again. These, these two sons represent two enemies, life and death. Just this week, several families here are grieving the loss of loved ones. Do you ever wonder why people why people weep when other people die? Why is it that we mourn and grieve? It's because death is an enemy. Those people that say death is just a natural part of life, this is all just part of the cycle, that's garbage. That is not what the Bible says. Death did not come into the world until sin came into the world. We grieve because it appears to us, at least temporarily, that our enemy has won a victory. Death is an enemy that separates us from those that we love. In the case of believers, it's only temporary. The good news is that death is a defeated enemy for the Christian, for those who believe in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15:26 calls death the last enemy to be destroyed. But where's the good news there? It will be destroyed at Jesus' second coming, where there will be no more death and no more crying and no more pain. So in this dichotomy of two crowds, two very different crowds, with two very different definition, uh, destinations, two very different sons, and two very different enemies, in this whole scene, we have on display the compassion and the power and the providence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that when... I mean, when you're talking to someone who is grieving and, and weeping, and what do, you want to, what do you want to do in comforting them? You want to comfort them. You want that pain to stop. You want them to not cry anymore. Don't weep. It's going to be okay. We say that because we don't know what else to do, really. We don't know what else to say. We want the pain and the hurt to stop. 
Jesus can say that and do something about it. Jesus, in verse 13, when the Lord saw this poor woman, this widow, grieving the loss of her only son, that day, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Anybody else? That's, what else do we do? What else can we say? Don't cry. It'll be all right. When Jesus says, do not weep, there's more coming. Here we can see the love that the Lord Jesus has for people. That's what compassion really is, right? It's an expression of love for the suffering. But Jesus' compassion for this grieving widow who had lost her only son didn't just end with words. I struggle with this. I, I talk to a lot of people who have experienced loss like this. Sometimes I'm there in the room with them as they say goodbye to a loved one. And I want to be able to say just the right word, just to make, to make the pain stop, to, to truly comfort those who are grieving. I want to say everything's going to be all right, as if it really will be. But that's a lie, because it won't. And if Jesus had just stopped with saying to this lady, do not weep, his expression of compassion would be an expression of cruelty. You don't have permission to weep? No, you do. Jesus says you don't have to weep. Jesus is not just talk. When he says do not weep, that means there's going to be a reason coming for your weeping to stop. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer, which is the, like a stretcher. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. I kind of wish every funeral would go like that. There'd be a lot more attendance at funerals, I think, if that happened more often. Jesus' compassion is accompanied by his power. He doesn't say don't weep because he doesn't want to be around people that are grieving and mourning. He says don't weep because he has power over death. He has power over the grave. Jesus is not just compassionate, but he is the compassionate life giver, the author of life. Here we can see, symbolically speaking, um, the symbol of spiritual restoration, right? This young man was dead and bound for the grave until Jesus. <laughs> How many of us, our life was on the same course? We were dead and bound for the grave and then Jesus, right? Think of your own story. Somewhere in there, maybe the Lord Jesus said to your own mother, do not weep.
the young man was dead and bound for the grave until Jesus intervened and brought him back to life. John Calvin wrote, By touching the coffin, he intended perhaps to show that he would by no means shrink from death and the grave in order to obtain life for us. He not only deigns to touch us with his hand in order to quicken us when we are dead, but in order that he might raise us to heaven, he himself descends into the grave. Jesus' compassion for the suffering and his power over death are on full display in this scene. But the fact that this scene happens at all is an evidence of his providence. That God is in control. That things are truly working out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's like the least comforting thing you can say to someone who is grieving. Because the immediate response is, so you're telling me that God killed my friend. You're telling me that, that God took the life of my loved one for my good. I don't like a God like that. So I would counsel you, maybe keep that one in your pocket. But the truth of the matter is, the fact that this scene happens at all is evidence that God is truly working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. J.J. Van Oosterzee wrote, The time of the death and the burial of this young man, the road taken by the funeral train, the meeting with the Lord directly at the decisive moment. Nothing of all this is casual here. Time, place, and circumstances are all ordered to reach a glorious goal, to comfort the afflicted, to glorify the Lord, and reveal the quickening power of God, the life-giving power of God. So if you're wondering if I'm saying that the death of this young man the grief and the loss felt by his mother, the feeling of desperation and loss of hope for her had some purpose. If you're wondering if that's what I'm saying, the answer is yes. Comfort for the afflicted, glory for the Lord Jesus, and the revelation of the life-giving power of God. That's the purpose. Not only that, but people have been able to read this account for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been able to see a little bit more of what God our Father is really like and perhaps put their trust in Jesus so they can join his crowd, the one full of life and headed for the city. This is all part of the plan. This is God's providence. So maybe things in your life aren't as out of control as they seem. Jesus said in John 5:24-29, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here." when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This dead man heard the voice of the Son of God and lived. This dead man heard the voice of the Son of God and lived. May all those who are spiritually dead hear the word of the Son of God, believe the one who sent him, and have eternal life in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is not an uh, easy message. Not a cheery Christmas. Cheery Christmas anthem. But it's the point of Christmas that you sent your only son that whoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. And we're forever grateful for that. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, those who are spiritually dead in their sins would hear the voice of the Son, would hear Jesus Christ and put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, be filled with your Holy Spirit and be adopted by the Father as children members of this family. We are so grateful for your love. So grateful for your sacrifice. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576 West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.